Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you will find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. Hi everyone. Welcome to our podcast today. It's it's a new year, if you will. We are entering into year A, and um, we're going to be talking about Matthew this year. So Matthew uh, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12 is where we're going to kick it off. Thanks, Christy. Yeah, our gospel lesson today presents Matthew's version of the ministry of John the Baptist. And Right at the outset of our journey through Matthew's gospel, we're confronted with the unique features of Matthew's gospel, uh, some of which are really going to challenge us in the coming months. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, as I think back, uh, we know we started our podcasting journey two years ago toward the end of year C, and we de- did some episodes on Matthew. I think it makes sense as we approach Matthew's gospel this year to make some introductory comments. Um, Much has been made about the structure of Matthew, for example. There are five significant teaching discourses in Matthew's gospel, and many have tried to see this as an intentional parallel with the five books of Torah. I don't see that myself. I mean, the structural markers, those those chapters are structural markers, but they're they're not the only structural markers in Matthew's gospel. Uh, and, and I will also have to recognize that Matthew does emphasize, perhaps even more overtly than the other synoptic gospels, the role of Jesus as an authoritative teacher of scripture. Mm-hmm. We're going to find Jesus quoting a lot of scripture in mm-hmm. Matthew's mm-hmm. gospel. Well, I had, you know, I, I guess I had heard and, and I, others have said, well, this is the, the Jewish one that he's quoting it mm-hmm. because they're trying to show that he has this knowledge of the old Testament. Right. And, and, and the, the flaw with that is that we saw Last year, Luke's relationship with the Septuagint is incredibly strong. You know, mm-hmm. he is, I mean, he is drawing on, on even in some of the parables, he's drawing on stories from the Septuagint. And, and so, uh, and, and he begins his infancy narratives with very mm-hmm. Jewish notions about purification right. and about right. obedience to the law. So, um, uh, you know, the, you know the, the whole New Testament is permeated with quotations to right. and allusions to the, the Septuagint. I think what's interesting, and I'm bringing this up, is because this the same person was telling me, oh, well, Luke is a Gentile gospel, and Matthew is the... <laughs> and I, I tried to instruct her that this is not that simple. But in our congregations, especially those who are a little bit more scripturally literate, literate this is kind of the assumption. I so, know it is. I know um, it is. That's just kind of an aha. We have a little re-education to do, I think. We do indeed. Because we really don't know all that much about Matthew or about the community he was addressing. It does seem legitimate, based on some details Matthew includes, to, to conclude that Matthew was writing from a Jewish Christian, or some would say a Christian Jewish perspective to a community that would have been familiar with those Mm -hmm. concerns. However, we cannot ignore the fact that Matthew also clearly envisions a mission beyond the Jewish people. And in fact, Matthew's gospel contains some of the harshest words of judgment Mm -hmm. against the Jewish leaders, which has in recent days been taken as an evidence (laughs) of his anti-Semitism, which is, in my opinion, a blatant anachronism. I agree. I agree. Mm -hmm. But for Matthew and, and his community, as well as the rest of the early church, by the time Matthew's writing his gospel, the inclusion of the Gentiles is already an is an established fact right yeah that's uh, (laughs) 
when you pull out that this is this anti-Semitism, yeah, this is this is taking it out of context. No, it's completely. more. It's, I mean, it's, it would be like saying Jeremiah was anti-Semitic for 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 criticizing the people for what they were doing. Yeah, you know? yeah, 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 yeah. It doesn't. It just doesn't. It doesn't hold up. So yeah. don't fall into there, that. There there are some statements in Matthew, however, that have been taken and used by absolutely. anti-Semitic people. Absolutely, that's, and that's part of the problem. That's the problem, yeah, right? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Now, I would say that for me, the most prominent feature of Matthew's gospel is that, as Gene Boring says in his um, section on the gospel of Matthew in the New Interpreter's Bible, which, by the way, um, if you have access to it, I really recommend it. It's a, it's a good set. Um, anyway, uh, Gene Boring says that it is a thoroughly eschatological gospel, and I would agree with that. Uh, the proclamation and inauguration of the kingdom of God and the ministry of Jesus is a thoroughly eschatological action. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that through this story of Jesus, the coming age of the kingdom has mm-hmm. broken into the present age and has already begun to assert its influence and make demands on the lives of those who would take part in it. That's what eschatological mm-hmm. means in that setting. So as we will come to see, however, one of the problems with this aspect of Matthew's gospel is that it also seems to be one of the most thoroughly influenced, one of the, of the gospels, one of the most thoroughly influenced by the apocalyptic thinking that was common among many in the Judaism of that day. And this is going to pose some significant challenges for us as 21st century interpreters, not least of all because of some of the violent imagery that Matthew mm-hmm. is willing to embrace. Yeah, yeah. And I think we... <laughs> Well, we tend to over, um, we tend to understate that, if you will. And one of the things I remember learning in seminary was p- to really be listening for this language. That this language is is important for us. Yes, indeed. So. Yes, indeed. Now, after Matthew's version of the infancy narrative, in which these all, most of these themes are introduced in some fascinating ways that we unfortunately don't have time to get into here, and I would say again, check out Gene Boring's commentary, the New Interpreter's Bible. He's got some good information there. The quote-unquote book of the story of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, which is the first mm-hmm. verse of Matthew, and it's Biblos Geneseos, which is the genitive of Genesis, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? And so, it, and it, and here it's normally taken as genealogy, but it could be the book of the story of mm-hmm. Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, mm-hmm. um, introduces the narrative really proper um, with the account of John the Baptist, as is the case in all four Gospels. Matthew tells us that it, though in those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And much of what we find in Matthew's description of John seems to identify him with Elijah, who was thought to be the one who would return as the forerunner of the Messiah. That he appeared in the wilderness and that his message was primarily one of repentance in the face of coming judgment bear Mm -hmm. out this resemblance. So then one of the unique features of Matthew's gospel is that he he frames the relationship between John and Jesus as one of close correspondence. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, in the other gospels, um, John appears and points to Jesus, and that's about it. Right. But in, in Matthew's gospel, there's more to it than that. And we see that with the message that John proclaimed, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near, which is exactly word for word, the same as the message Matthew reports that Jesus began preaching after his temptation Mm -hmm. in the wilderness in Matthew 4.17. And so this sets up the expectation that Jesus' ministry will follow the pattern of John's in that it will be focused 
on judgment. Mm-hmm. And we should hear that word. You know, the, the, there does seem to be this sense in which John, in Matthew's gospel at least, is expecting Jesus' ministry to be one of judgment. And, and one of the reasons why I say that is because later on when in Matthew 11, when John sends his messengers to Jesus to say, are you the one who is to come or should we look for another? I think we see that Jesus was not living up to John's expectations. Mm-hmm. And so um, this is something that we should, we, we, we should not overlook and we should not sort of try to cover over because this is a unique feature in Matthew's gospel. You know, as you were telling us this, and I'm thinking about the unique framing here, my mind is taken to, to what extent are those who are, are listening to the, as, as they're being reframed by these new gospelers, are they familiar with the one that came before? So for example, how many people would have mm-hmm. been familiar with the story as told by Mark? And so then as Matthew comes and reframes it and Luke comes and reframe, reframes it, um, and how and how does that impact it? So were they coming with one assumption, and then Matthew came and said, "Oh, they don't. They're not getting it. This is not. This is not the right direction." I mean, or or is it just really for different audiences? You know, I think that's a very interesting question. I'm not sure it's one that we can answer honestly. Um, you know, there there is evidence that Matthew made use of Mark mm-hmm. or something like Mark, right? Um, or at least the oral tradition that Mark right. had access to. We don't know. That's the problem is we don't know in what form Mark was available to Matthew. And so we don't know in what form it might have been available to his community. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things we do know is that the gospel had been preached orally for decades right, right. before any of these gospels were written down. So so the traditions about Jesus would have been familiar um, I think the question is, you know, for example, some of the unique material to Matthew's gospel, was that something the community he was addressing this gospel to mm-hmm. was, was familiar with? We don't right. know. We, 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 right. Those are unanswered well, yeah, questions yeah. we can't I answer. I suppose you're right. Yeah. Uh, it, so, I mean, I think I would, I would say it this way. Matthew is writing his gospel to reinforce the faith of his particular community in their particular situation. Yeah. And and so that is that I think is probably one of the most important influences on Matthew's interpretation is that he is writing he is taking the gospel tradition as he's received it from sources like Math Mark and or, then so he's creating it but not necessarily to correct some other assumption about how they we, we, would have framed Jesus. We can't ministry. know that. We, we just can't don't know, know that. that. Oh, okay. Yeah, right, okay, fair right, enough. Right, fair right. enough. So, again, um, the correspondence between John and Jesus sets up sort of the expectation that Jesus' ministry is going to follow John's and that it will be focused on judgment. And I will say Matthew does recount the ways in which Jesus' ministry and message differed from John's. And so, in other words, he's, he's being faithful to the gospel tradition in, in recounting some of the words and teachings of Jesus that don't really fit that pattern. Uh, it, it does... This, this does lead most interpreters to say that Matthew has incorporated John and his message within a Christian framework, and that's the way Boring says it in the New Interpreter's Bible. I would, you know, in other words, in other words, most mm-hmm. people read John and Matthew's account of John's ministry from a Christian perspective. Right. I would say it's an open question whether Matthew has reframed John's ministry from a Christian perspective. In other words, Matthew's reading John from a Christian perspective, mm-hmm. or whether Matthew has imported John's emphasis on judgment into his narrative 
of Jesus' ministry. Mm-hmm. In other words, he has he has been influenced by John and and mm-hmm. the apocalyptic thinking that John reflects right. in his interpretive right, lens right. and in his narr- narrative of the story of Je- of Jesus' right. ministry. And you know, when I read these notes that Alan had, my mind immediately first went to the second one of these that Matthew's imported John's emphasis on judgment. Maybe I've been hanging out with Alan too long, <laughs> but I mean that was seemed to be obvious to me. And then I say stepped back and I thought, no, I, I I'm very familiar with the other one. Mm-hmm. So, and I think um, I think it's an interesting question, but it, it's going to make a huge impact on how we understand this gospel depending on which one of these we it is um, it is begin with. and 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 most interpreters most commentators most scholars will choose the first one because if you don't choose that then it raises some big questions about the place of matthew in our canon and how, how do we use matthew as christian canon mm-hmm. as Chris, christian scripture and, and yet, <clears throat> I think, and I would say the latter perspective is one that is more recent, but I think it has been raised by people who are concerned about the violent imagery in some of Matthew's parables, for example, mm-hmm. as well as in comparison with the same parables in other gospels, right? Mm-hmm, so in, mm-hmm. particularly in Luke, you know, there's, there's more violent imagery in Matthew's gospel than in, in, mm-hmm. in comparable parables in Luke. And the other thing I think is that that this awareness of, you know, that the apocalyptic influence on the New Testament is not necessarily um, one that is consistent either with the the um, the biblical basis in the in the in the Hebrew Bible mm-hmm. of the prophets, nor consistent with Jesus' message. And so, um, you know, we have some challenges here that we're going to be looking at with yeah, Matthew's gospel. Yeah, it is. It is. And to throw in an aside, most of us still are framed with this collapsing that Calvin does, that mm-hmm. they've done, um, and that does so well that it becomes part of it. And I, I know many ministers that do that today. They don't even really spend time pulling apart these different views. But I think it's important for us to get that historical context into our knowledge about how the story is told. I'll say it this way, given, given my experience and my background with reading the gospels, I can't, I can't approach Matthew any other way than this, honestly, mm-hmm. and, mm. and approach it honestly. Yeah. 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 That's yeah. 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 So again, like all of the gospels, Matthew interprets the ministry of John with reference to Isaiah 43. 40, 40, chapter 40, verse 3. This is the one of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, in all of the Gospels, it seems clear that the role of John is the one of a forerunner. But in contrast to the original context in Isaiah, where this statement refers to God as the one who will clear the way for the people of Israel to be released from captivity, the Gospels all apply this statement to John as the one who is preparing the way for the Lord mm-hmm. Jesus. And in Matthew, uh, we see this um, preparation is accomplished by his by John's preaching about the need for repentance. We also see this emphasis on on John as the one who's preparing for the way for the Lord Jesus in that um, in the Hebrew Bible, uh, it says, make straight a way for our God. Mm-hmm. In, 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 in Matthew here, as in all the other Gospels, it's make his paths straight. Mm. So, in other words, the Lord. Mm-hmm. And in 
the gospel context, the Lord is going to be Jesus. Right. So, um, you know, again, the idea is that, that John is the one who's preparing the way for the, for Jesus to come. And this Mm -hmm. preparation is accomplished Mm -hmm. by his preaching about the need for, for the people to repent. So, um, we're moving on then, um, what happens next? Well, you know, one of the things we're going to see in Matthew is that Matthew is fond of citing Scripture. And, again, typically Matthew cites from the Septuagint, the Greek version of the, of the Hebrew Bible. I don't Bible. think most that, – you know, that's really an interesting point. Um, Matthew, who's perceived as being the one who is the great Jewish scholar, is not – quoting it from the the Hebrew scripture, but from the Septuagint. Yeah. As does the rest of the New Testament. Right, as does primarily. the rest. But, you know, it's one of those, I think, interesting little things when I get that, well, he's obviously just approaching this. And you're talking about, I, I think the Septuagint in itself marks kind of a mixed culture, right? You're talking about Hebrew and you're talking about impact of well the, it, it, the Septuagint was translated for Jewish community exactly. in Egypt um, and 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 uh, who who were primarily Greek speaking exactly basically exactly yeah. exactly yeah now I, I do say typically from the Septuagint because there are some significant uh, quotations in Matthew where we're not sure where he's quoting from actually oh interesting <laughs> hmm. so we'll That's we'll cool. we'll get to that All when right. we come there now, it is clear, however, that he is using material that he has received from the gospel tradition because the way in which Matthew cites Isaiah here, of whom the prophet Isaiah spoke when he said, is unique in his gospel. And, you know, that Matthew, like other Christians, typically started with the conviction that Jesus represented the fulfillment of God's redemptive purpose in the Hebrew Bible and not with the idea that individual texts in the Hebrew Bible represented predictions of Jesus. We will see further as we work our way through Matthew's gospel. And this is contrary to the way most people have treated it. It's been treated in most of Christian history, beginning with the apologetic notions of early church fathers like Justin Martyr and Origen. And it runs up to today. I mean, this is pretty common practice in my congregation, right? Oh, well, Jesus is predicted in Isaiah. God's predicted. it That that reverses the the direction. It's not that they go back to the Old Testament and they say, oh, see, this is Jesus. Mm -hmm. They start with Jesus and they start with the conviction that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's purposes. And they find those correlations and those correspondences in the Hebrew Bible. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, Matthew continues then with a description of John and his ministry. Now, John wore clothing of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Um, Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. This is paralleled in Mark 1, 5 through 6. And while the content is essentially the same, the agreement is not word for word in the Greek text. The emphasis here, though, on the rough quality of John's clothing and the austere diet that he observed, and I think about Daniel mm-hmm. here, who yeah. would not re- accept the rich food in, in Nebuchadnezzar's court. Um, with this, um, um, basically, this marks him as a prophet and reinforces Matthew's presentation of John as the Elijah, mm-hmm. whom many expected to come as the forerunner of, of the Messiah. Mm-hmm. So it's not just a quirky uh, detail. It has. It has. It has purpose. Um, this um, this theme of uh, this Elijah theme is uh, Calvin's going to pick up on that as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Um, 
So the outcome then of John's ministry on the surface of things seems to be a success. Matthew says that Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region around the Jordan were baptized by John. And, of course, if that were true, that would have been incredible. Mm-hmm. But, of course, the next verse imply, next verses imply that there were some, and later on in the narrative perhaps we should conclude many who did not respond mm-hmm. in this way. Uh, the use of all for many is well attested in the Hebrew Bible, and so this is just basically okay. a, 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 an idiomatic way of speaking. Mm-hmm. What is important for Matthew's purpose is, is, to, is to indicate that John fulfilled his role as the forerunner by bringing the people to repentance in preparation for yes. the Messiah's coming. Yes. Um, and so the next section, what happens in that? Well, the next section recounts John's demands regarding the repentance of those who came to him. But it's a little bit complicated because it's very different from, from the account that we're used to in Luke's gospel. Uh, Matthew says, but when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees in the new RSV, the new RSV translation coming for baptism, So the New RSV Mm -hmm. translates that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were coming for baptism. He said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Mm -hmm. Therefore, bear fruit worthy of repentance and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our ancestor. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children to Abraham. Even now the axe is lying at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Yeah. Yeah. That is that is very, very, that's that violent language that yeah. Matthew uses. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, one of the most notable features then of Matthew's account of John's preaching is that he tells us that, this, that all of this is in response to seeing Pharisees and Sadducees, again, as the NRSV says it, coming for baptism. Mm-hmm. And the, the Greek phrase is epi. And, mm-hmm. and that could be translated that way. But one of the things we're, that... that is often overlooked is that there is some overlap in the prepositions and the use mm-hmm. of prepositions like this in the Greek New Testament. And so here, epi really probably just simply means ice. In other words, they were coming to John's baptism or they were coming to, um, uh, to watch John's baptism or to observe John's baptism. Mm-hmm. They were not coming to be baptized. Now, the, there are a number of versions in the English Bible tradition that translate it as if the Pharisees and the Sadducees were coming to be baptized. Well, yeah. The, the Common English Bible, the New Common English Bible does it that way, mm-hmm. the Contemporary English Version, the Good News Translation, or today's English Version. Gene Peterson's message maybe suggests it. The New American Standard mm-hmm. Bible, Tom Wright's New Testament for Everyone, and the New RSV also suggests this way. I think, however, it's historically unlikely that these Pharisees and Sadducees were coming to repent of their sins and be baptized mm-hmm. right. publicly because, as a show of their repentance right, right. by this it doesn't quite make sense and by yet, this guy wearing camel's hair and leather belt coming from the wilderness you know i just don't see that and as historically john, you know i'm just going back to the the earlier one when john sees them coming he he criticizes them for showing up mm-hmm. so maybe john wonders if they want to be baptized or they they're there. They're present. They're watching something. I think the point is that John. That point is John is trying to point out is that, you know, they think that their position in the kingdom in the coming kingdom is secure because right. they're descendants of Abraham, 
And right. John says, you got it wrong. You right. have to you have to bear fruit worthy of repentance right. in order to escape from the impending but, judgment or the coming wrath. This is, so this is a very interesting piece because you're right. This These are a group of people that would probably look at John and roll their eyes right. and think, oh, wow, we are so above that. Um, and so... <laughs> Now, Calvin is not going to read it that way, by the yeah, way. Yeah, I understand. Um, but I, I think that's an interesting interesting point because if they are just watching, that kind of changes things around a little bit in this. It really it really brings that, um, that uh, they, us versus them yes. even more into conflict. If there you is will. this conflict, and mm-hmm. that, I think that's the purpose of this is to bring out the conflict that's going to run throughout the Gospels, mm. the Gospel of Matthew. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, I will say, I will add this. Some of the older translations as well as some newer translations uh, take the same approach that I'm taking here. Uh, the Geneva Bible uh, just simply said, coming to John's baptism. Um, American Standard Version, the King James Version, um, all say it that way. Uh, the English, the English Standard Version, which is hmm. a newer translation, Holman Christian Standard, uh, the New Living Translation specifically says, "Coming to watch oh, his baptism." Interesting. Yeah, yeah, the NIV also translates it this way. So there, there is there is the, a significant portion of the English Bible tradition that takes this this interpretation as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting point. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, but I I do think that the that the reason why this passage is here is in Matthew's gospel, its function in Matthew's gospel, is to introduce the conflict between the Jewish leaders and yeah. those who are representatives okay. of the kingdom of God, like mm-hmm. John, and then it's of course going to be transferred to Jesus, and they're the ones who are the brood of vipers um, uh, to whom John really does d- d- deliver a very harsh message of impending judgment the you know the coming wrath mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. okay now i think it's important to note that matthew omits john's specific demands regarding repentance as found in luke 10 luke chapter 3 verses 10 through 14 you know they they come to him and ask him what shall we do and and john mm-hmm. says well if you have two coats share one right. or if you're a tax collector don't collect more than you should or if you're a soldier don't extort people you know using the threat of violence uh, that part is left out and i i like uh, so wd davies and dale adelson have one of the most um extensive critical commentaries on matthew in recent in recent years, and they suggest that Matthew is reserving the role of teacher, this kind of ethical mm-hmm. teacher for Jesus. And we're going to see that coming to the fore in the Sermon on the Mount, especially in Matthew 5, 21 through 48, when Jesus is going to say, you have heard that it was said, mm-hmm. you shall not kill, but I say to you, and Jesus mm-hmm. then becomes the one who is teaching them the specifics of how they're right. to, to, to conduct themselves. You said something interesting there. You said you know, this was left out, or was it simply just not Added. And, and, and I, I think that makes some difference because it, it, it kind of suggests, was that part of the tradition then that he would have put it in because it had been included before? Or indeed, is this something that was added? Well, by? and that's a good question. This is Davies and Allison's uh, suggestion. Um, the, the This part of, about 
um, about the specific demands is only found in Luke 3, 10 through 14. Mm-hmm. So we don't know if it was in Q or not. Um, the, you know, the part before and the part after this is found in Luke. Mm-hmm. So, and, and pretty oh, word I for word. See. I see. So it seems okay. like, it okay. seems like the, the, the part before and the part after this in, in, you know, in Luke's gospel is, is very similar. And so it seems like maybe these verses were in cue and, and that mm. Matthew chose not to, not to report them. So okay. we can't know that for okay. sure. Right. But that's, oh. that's the, that's the take that when Davies and Allison Q, have on it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> boy, wouldn't that be amazing? Q. Yeah, that would be amazing. <laughs> So then, then the conclusion of the lesson, Matthew returns to the material that he shares with Luke um, in verses 11 mm-hmm. and 12, uh, the Q tradition, if you, mm-hmm. would, if you will. I baptize you with water for repentance, but the one who is coming after me is more powerful than I, and I'm not worthy to carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, and he will gather his wheat into the granary, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And as we saw last year when we took this passage in Luke uh, uh, 3, 16 through 17, you know, this is um, this is almost word for word the same mm-hmm. in Matthew. Uh, there are some, there are some cha- minor, minor revisions. The same is true for the earlier part that introduced John, uh, which, you know, and I, 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 I said it last year, but I should say it again this year. The reason why we believe that there was some kind of written source is because there are 300 verses in Matthew and Luke that they share with one another Mm -hmm. that are not found anywhere else in the gospel tradition. And in many places like here, there's almost word for word agreement in, in much of that material. So Q, where did they come up with Q? Well, they weren't watching Star Trek. Um, (laughs) It was, it comes from the German word Quelle, which means source. So it's a it's a written source, so that you can understand why d- the German New Testament scholars who who suggested this theory use the word Q. I, I think if it had been an English speaking scholar, he would have used the letter S. <laughs> right, right, exactly. <laughs> now, in the conclusion, so then, so then um, here. In, in verses uh, 11 and 12, we see one of the most important differences between Matthew and the other synoptic gospels. In all of this passage, in Matthew 3, 1 through 12, there has been no mention of forgiveness associated with John's baptism. In all the other gospels, it is brought out. In Matthew's gospel, mm-hmm. it is omitted. There is no mention of forgiveness in, in association with John's baptism. Which and means so, forgiveness would come with Christ. Yes. Uh, uh, John's baptism is related exclusively mm. to repentance as a means of preparing people mm. to respond appropriately to the Messiah, who is the one who will bring them forgiveness. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Boy, that that adds a whole lot of question marks in terms of the practice of baptism. And, and Calvin's going to have a very different um interpretation of this well if we try to make john the exemplar for our practice of baptism then it's going to create some problems yeah mm-hmm. yeah. yeah 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 it does okay so hang on to that we'll talk about that more i think in our as we move through today so um um i guess jesus then if with this idea that jesus is the one that brings forgiveness how does I mean, how is how is John portraying Jesus then? Yeah, well, 
you know, the, the, the idea that, that, that John is going to prepare the people to respond appropriately to the Messiah, who's going to be the one to bring forgiveness, you know, that is implicit in the fact that Jesus dies for the people's sins, right? Mm-hmm. And, and for those who respond accordingly, they, they receive that forgiveness. But I think we also see, uh, at least we get a, an idea that John's expectation of Jesus' ministry is is that it will be one that is primarily of judgment. That he's going to do much the same as he has done in so, terms of his connection in his relation so to the John Jewish really people. So John really doesn't understand who Jesus is. I think that's probably true. I think that's probably true. John is thinking of of the Hebrew prophets of old. Um, very few of them. I mean, Isaiah is a notable exception, but m- most of the other major prophets and the minor prophets in the, in the Bible have words of judgment and and call the people to repentance. That's that's the role of a prophet. You know, that's, my mind is spinning here, but I keep thinking of uh, Calvin's going to see John as the prophet, mm-hmm. not Jesus specifically. Mm-hmm. Right. So right. as this kind of shift, because the end of the prophet shows the end of the age, with right. Jesus is the new age. I think so, that's a common point of view. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But but here I think we do. Here we're talking about John's expectation of right. Jesus, right. and I think I think I think it makes sense that you know he says that the one who is coming after me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire, mm-hmm. and in the context of what Matthew says. Plus, in the context of what's going to come later in Matthew, mm-hmm. I think we we can't help but read this in Matthew's gospel as John's expectation that Jesus' ministry is going to be one primarily focused around judgment mm-hmm. as well. Now, Mark emphasized that Jesus will baptize with the Spirit in Mark 1.8. And Luke's parallel statement to Matthew that, that Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and the fire seems to point to Pentecost. Right, and yep. so it's it's not an image of coming judgment, but in Matthew, this statement is oriented primarily and perhaps exclusively toward judgment. John proclaimed that at the boundary of the new age, all would pass through the fiery ruach or spirit mm-hmm. or breath of God, a stream that would purify the righteous and destroy the unrighteous. Mm-hmm. And that's a quote from Davies and Allison's commentary on Matthew one through seven. Now, again, I think we will see this rather apocalyptic vision of what God is doing in the world reiterated many times through our course of our journey through Matthew's gospel. In images like the separation of the wheat from the chaff here, mm-hmm. the wheat is gathered into the barn, the chaff is burned up, um, the, 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 the separation of the good tree from the bad tree in Matthew five seventeen through 13. The separation mm-hmm, of the children mm-hmm. of the kingdom from the children of the evil mm-hmm. one, which is presented as the interpretation of the parable of the wheat and the weeds in mm-hmm, Matthew 13, mm-hmm. 37 through 38. And the wise from yep. the foolish, yep. which is presented in the parable of the, of the wise and the foolish versions in Matthew 25, 1 through 13, as well as the sheep from the goats mm-hmm. and in the familiar parable in Matthew 25, 31 through 46. And the end result of all this separation is found in Matthew twenty five forty six that the latter, that is, the chaff, the bad tree, the children of the evil one, the foolish, the goats, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into mm-hmm. eternal life. Right. That is a vision of the kingdom of God that, frankly, in my opinion, is very different from the vision of the kingdom of God that I hear from Jesus in Luke's gospel right. or in Mark's gospel. And, you know, this this um, almost excessive emphasis on judgment and punishment is unique to Matthew's gospel. 
So I think, and again, I think all of this is entirely consistent with John's vision of what God was doing in the world, but mm-hmm. I don't see it c- compatible with Jesus' message that God makes his sun rise on the evil and the world and the good and sends rain on the righteous and on the unrighteous. Mm-hmm. And again, that's a quotation from Matthew 5, mm-hmm. 45. So mm-hmm. I give credit to Matthew for, for, for um, uh, being faithful to the, the, to the gospel tradition that had this quote in it. But um, I'm, I'm challenged and I'm struggling and I'm wrestling personally with, with the fact that Matthew can seemingly endorse this image of a violent judgment and, a, and this, this uh, almost extreme separation that is the point of the kingdom of God. I, I can't help but wonder historically when the destruction of the temple is and that mm-hmm. mindset of... <laughs> Uh, the mindset that leaves you in, that impacted his interpretation. Apocalyptic literature typically arises, literature that is, that is oriented toward apocalyptic themes primarily arises among people who have experienced some sort of oppression. Right. Right, yeah. and so if if Matthew's writing to a community that's been expelled from Jerusalem because of the destruction of, of the temple, mm-hmm. then perhaps right. we can understand right. this. So again, we're confronted at the outset of our journey through Matthew's gospel with the fact that Matthew seems to have interpreted Jesus' ministry more in line with the judgment that John the Baptist foresaw than the other synoptic gospels do. And for me, this makes Matthew's gospel one of the most difficult to interpret because in it we find an unusual combination between Matthew's interpretive lens which seems to be distinctly colored by judgment and apocalyptic themes, and Matthew's faithfulness to the gospel tradition, which, in my opinion, presents Jesus in a very different light. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. Well, we'll go look at Calvin in just a little bit. All right, thanks. thanks. Hi, friends, we're back, and we're going to take a look at uh, what the Reformers, especially Calvin, had to say about this passage. So, Christy, tell us what you found. Uh, yeah, that's, there's a lot of themes in this passage, and despite not being any longer than most of the others we look at, when you looked at Calvin's commentaries, there was just a lot of stuff he's packed into here. Um, and I think, um, just to kind of give you an overview of some of the things that come out that are important for our Reformed tradition, um, Obviously, Calvin, the harmonizer, is spends a little bit of time trying to figure out the differences in the Gospels. Why are they different, and why do they start in different places? And so that's one of the first questions he starts with here. Um, now, so he's framing this in terms of this kind of broad work of God in the human world. And so um, for Calvin, there's this, this Old Testament period, if you will, that comes to an end and a time of silence. Um, the prophets, he ties directly to them. And then there's this time of silence where people have to live in memory or hope or seeking another voice. But they are, as he says, that is the wilderness. This is the wilderness where there's no pro- prophetic voice. So he's using that metaphorically um, in his interpretation. And, and that's a common point viewpoint from I think a theological point of view mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, um, and even those who are who who are biblically minded you know they see the word of God in you know the 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 Hebrew Bible and then this gap and then we see the New Testament mm-hmm. um, you know I think historically speaking we'd have to say there were there were prophets and speakers and and people who who arose and addressed the people throughout that period right right. <laughs> 
but this is his interpretation of it. So, right. and then obviously Mark beginning the gospel with John the Baptist and explains, and Calvin explains this as that it is with John the Baptist that the law and the prophets come to an end. So John marks, if you will, this new beginning, interestingly enough. So I think that's mm-hmm. interesting. Instead of saying it's Christ where it's ushered in, it's right. with John. And there's a couple reasons that he says this later on. It really has to do with the initiation of baptism. Yeah. Um, huh. And that is done by John. And un, and So John is the one who initiates baptism. John's the one who initiates baptism, <laughs> hmm. which is interesting. The practice, the sign. And, right. we, and if you're a Presbyterian, you know, the sign and seal. Right. It's the sign that is begun by John. And, wow. And therefore, well, I'll, I'll get that into that in a minute here. So he explains um, um, this in, in the context of actually Malachi. Because Malachi, um, he views as being the last of the true mm-hmm. and lawful prophets. Mm-hmm. And so, quoting Malachi 3.1, See, I am sending my messenger to prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Indeed, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Well, and, you know, from a, from a biblical standpoint, from the New Testament standpoint, you know, Calvin is, is harmonizing the Gospels. And, you know, whereas um, Matthew, um, Matthew, Luke, and John cite Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, Mark cites this combined quotation right. from Malachi 3.1 yep, yep, yep. and Isaiah right, right. 40, verse 3. And this 3. is important. I can't tell <laughs> uh, in the commentary. He, he, uh, sometimes he'll pull out one thing from Mark, one thing from Luke, but sometimes he'll, he'll put them all together. But he wanted to then contextualize what we've just learned and then putting it into this context of Malachi. Sure. It is, um, yeah, it's kind of hard. It, I feel like it's doing the exact opposite of what we are trying to accomplish by pulling apart our, right. our writers. Now, all of a sudden, we are confronted with trying to harmonize them all. Yes. And I think in today's world, we have a mix. I think we have this desire to pull them apart. We're being taught that, and yet somewhere in the back of our mind is this kind of one continuous story that's come down with the efforts of people like Calvin. So, Well, and I think that's the, that's the version of Jesus that most people have started out with. And, and, you know, especially folks in the pews, that's what they have. Exactly, exactly. Um, so a second theme is um, the scripture and the relationship between the gospel and the Old Testament. So in other words, that full complete story is one of the things that Calvin is looking at. Mm-hmm. And obviously, connection to the prophets that, he's, that Calvin is drawing between these two. So when you're looking at that that thing is that, um, as I mentioned, the the prophets were, were not something new, but an extension of the law. Mm. Um, and so this period of the last prophet to come of Christ, we just talked about that as having that break in between. Um, the law indeed was given through Moses, and grace and truth then comes through Jesus Christ. Right. Um, so Jesus, um, Calvin would say that Jesus would not supersede the law, but would be a fulfillment of the law, would be bringing the good news. Mm-hmm. So again, he's seeing this continuity. This is stuff that all sounds familiar to us. Sure. But yet, this is where Calvin is working out some of that stuff. And, and I guess, you know, just to point out how Calvin is harmonizing, you know, he's talking about Mark beginning the gospel from a perspective that's quoted from Luke 16 
and brings in John. Yes. <laughs> right. So he's bringing it all in yeah, together. Yeah, he brings it all in together. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah. Right. So the same thing is pl- placing John into then the historical order. So we've started to, part of that's with scripture and in parts this historical order, he's also trying to you know, make sense of our human walk. Um, and so again, Mr. Calvin, who's harmonizing, is seeking to create that flow of God's purpose in the world. Um, and so he actually goes into a bunch of time talking exactly about so um, who John is. John's ministry, he says, was he was about 30 years of age. He was born 15 <laughs> years before the death of Augustus and began preaching during the reign of Tiberius. So he's, he's giving us that historical right. context. Right. Um, then um, the next question is, what does it mean to repent and what is John's purpose? And so in this process, John draws out that John was to offer baptism of repentance, but that this repentance was naturally connected um, for the forgiveness of sins. And so just kind of the opposite Mm -hmm. of what we just learned, that indeed that is why one repented. And again, that harmonizing would do that. In other words, there is no reason to repent unless you hope for forgiveness. Mm -hmm. He is preparing the way John's for a perfect happiness in Christ, says Calvin, and that, and he says that this will happen when all those are freely adopted by God, all those who repent, and God reconciles um, them to God's self, even though they are unworthy. So this is all big Reformation theology. Mm-hmm. He's putting right into this passage, right? Um, and he's really emphasizing that this is the importance of John's ministry. It is, it is an awakening of the people to the mercy of God. Wow. I mean, completely different than we just I, talked about. I can't about. help but think of, of, of John Calvin seeing himself in a similar vein to John the Baptist in terms of their roles, you know, because as John the Baptist was introducing the people to this mercy of God and preparing them to receive the forgiveness of sins and, and true happiness by being adopted by God and embracing this, this different, to, you know, different outlook on, on life, you know, mm-hmm. perhaps John Calvin also saw himself in a similar light. I, you know, I think that's a, a good point. And we'll see more, maybe how he fits that here in a minute. <laughs> um, as Calvin says, Repentance is not first. It is not the ground of forgiveness. But God is the ground, and the repentance allows those who repent to receive freely offered forgiveness from God. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the heart of this Surely. Calvin, right? Surely. And a mark of God's sovereignty. Boom, there it is. Yeah. Um, forgiveness freely given is because of what God does in Jesus. So this activity of John is a starting point for the gospel. Hmm. Wow. So deep breath got a lot that he got out of this, yeah. this beginning space. Okay. So we move on. Calvin also uses this in his discussion of sacramental theology, Bet you didn't really think baptism was going to be the heart of his discussion, but he does. Um, and so he points out that this is really the first time we see baptism baptism using the water we're not using and he does he actually earlier other places in his commentaries talks about you know circumcision was that of the law and mm-hmm. now we have baptism mm-hmm. and it replaces it and mm-hmm. we've heard that theory mm-hmm. and not everyone agrees with it but that is something calvin actually talks about mm-hmm. and then he goes to talk about that these sacraments are not dumb ceremonies um, they are not just activities but they are t- tied directly to the word of god 
They're, of course. They're scriptures. This is so perfectly Calvin. Yeah. The word gives, activates this, um, this life in this, in this practice. Yeah. And it is central to our understanding of baptism and the role of the word of God in our own practice today. And as, well, I mean, as, as, you know, as they would say, you know, without, without the word, the water, there's just water and the bread is just bread. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And of course, what? The word has to be proclaimed when a sacrament is performed. Yes. So um, as we know, John not only baptized, but preached and baptized. He taught and baptized. Um, and so the practice of baptism was, quote, the outward representation of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And because of this, Calvin says that the baptism of John is not different from the baptism of Christ. <laughs> that took me by surprise. I have to be honest a little bit. I wasn't quite, um, I, I didn't feel up enough on Calvin to, to realize that. But I, would, I would say I have to disagree with him. Um, you know, and in fact, um, um, you know, there's a, there's a passage in Acts 19 where Paul encounters disciples of John and all they've received is the baptism of John, and he baptizes them into Christ so right. that they receive the Holy right. Spirit. So yeah. I'm surprised that that John that Calvin didn't pick up on that. At least not here. And I didn't. Yeah. I apologize. I didn't go on to see what he says in the Institutes, um, you know, and how how that works because it seems to me mm-hmm. that it would differ. But his point is that this is the, this is the the baptism is done through the Spirit. Mm-hmm. The baptism is done, um, that this is an outward sign, but it's really, it's, and I think, I, I don't know the order these are written. I think this is written earlier than maybe what comes out ultimately in institutes. I'm sure that it is. And so therefore, maybe he finishes out this theology, this a little bit more. Mm-hmm. But he's, he's beginning this concept of there's a sign, but the sign in itself doesn't hold what God does, but it's a, it's a sign and then it seals that promise of God, yep. um, a salvation. So, and as a work of, as an act of the Spirit. Exactly. Yeah. So in that way, yeah. and suggesting that when Jesus then is baptized, we too have that same baptized, that mm-hmm. same baptism. We share that mm-hmm. baptism. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and then he goes to claim that, to he goes on to claim uh, that baptism. Um, is necessary for our repentance. Um, it does not make sense to baptize those who do not seek forgiveness, he says, and therefore adults coming into the church should be examined before they are baptized. <laughs> now, this is very interesting because one should be, it, you shouldn't just go out and be baptized because it's fun or people are watching, right? That, mm-hmm. that, you, should, um, that you should show repentance. But what an interesting thing that he's like, look, these adults should be examined to make sure they've done that. But then he goes in the second next sentence to say this is not a basis for oral confession. Hmm. In other words, the examination would be done one time at baptism. And furthermore, repentance should not be just words, but accompanied by actions and good works. So he's pushing back on, on the sacrament of confession and penance, I guess. Yeah. Exactly. So he's trying to draw this very careful line between, you don't just go baptize anyone. It is more than just a practice you do, but it actually is transforming. And but you can't be transformed unless you know your heart is open mm-hmm. to it, unless you've mm-hmm. opened yourself to God's forgiveness. So I think that's where that comes from. But yet, on the other hand, don't make that a practice. It's not going through some priest to make sure that you are um, constantly, constantly telling your sins. So it's just a really interesting yeah. balance he's trying to do. Um, Repentance should not be just good words, and they are indeed fruit. The 
they, they should be accompanied with actions, fruits of repentance. So it's an inward matter that then transform heart and soul that impacts how one acts. And, sure. and this, this sounds, again, so familiar. This is the core of Reformed theology. Surely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Well, and I would say there's a lot of biblical... Um, Biblical basis for that kind of idea that when one truly responds to God's grace in faith, that it, cha- it changes the way one right. lives. Ex- That's a theme that runs ex- throughout Scripture. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Um, so then this moves on, um, you know, also the, the signs of faith in general. And he talks a little bit about that, that these signs, um, the, again, the sacramental theology. So this this is not only going to be seen in baptism, but also in the Lord's Supper later on, too. Mm. A sign of, uh, outward sign of what an inward transformation. So, um, inward work of, of God. Mm-hmm. All right. Another theme, enemies of Christ. No surprise here, right? <laughs> <laughs> and here it's with the Pharisees, but his world are, is the papacy. I mean, <laughs> he goes right away and starts attacking the Roman Catholic Church within the context of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Um, on the Pharisees, Calvin argues that the repentance was not just to a people, but to individuals. So he does an interesting play on equality, saying that repentance is equally open to all, but they don't all come come to it equally. In other words, their life space has made them unequal, right. which is interesting as well. And therefore, John addressed them with great severity. Uh. Um, so these elevated groups that are, are not equal, at least in the eyes of society, um, then have to come at it with, with if you will, I don't know if more sincerity is the right word, but... but Maybe there's more distance or somehow to, mm-hmm. for them to mm-hmm. be um, to be asking for for forgiveness and repentance. Um, according to Calvin, John is really going after these hip, the hip hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. John wants to make sure that they did not gain more pride from this act of baptism, oh. um, but more than that, um, that the rebuke was for the whole church, for those who are mesmerized by the power and the role. It was a chance to remind people that the justice of God, their creation of God, rather than their roles, um, that elevated them. Well, and it's, it's, I think it's not hard to see John uh, Calvin uh, thinking of John the Baptist's words to the Pharisees and Sadducees, and in Calvin's mind, thinking of the the pope, the priests and bishops, yep. and you know, yep. all, you know, all yep. the all the all the, their I trappings think, of their lives. I think he would def- see a direct parallel, though. He's mm-hmm. seeing and remind you to remind everyone that the Roman Catholic Church of the 16th century is really corrupt, and it's really filled with wealth and ostentatious display of it at that and popes are living in fancy villas and wearing fancy expensive robes and so are the the priesthood is just very very elevated mm-hmm. and what people see is very very elevated and it's it's it I, you could see exactly how you would see that and mm-hmm. um this kind of assuming I'm saved, I'm in this role, but then you'd see them not carrying on actions that were expected of sure. of someone who was supposed to be pious. So exactly what he sees. Um, so Calvin um, responds to um, the question, um, if John addressed the Pharisees with such harsh language, how should we react to enemies of Christ? 
So first he defines who those enemies are. Obviously, in his mind, Roman Catholics. But they are, first, people against sound doctrine. Second, that their actions are against Christ. And third, that they will use force um, and military conflict. Um, in other words, he's content condemning the militant sectarian groups. So hmm. these are going to be some of those radical ref- sure. reformers in there. But interesting because mainline reformers are going to be caught up in war. Uh-huh. So he has that concept of just war. Uh-huh. And what an interesting uh-huh problem there because um, who, who's, who's in just war and who's in unjust war? And right. he says it really depends where it, co- it comes from. If it comes from some kind of external um, external desire or whether it's coming from protecting um, if you will, protecting the, uh, protecting what is good and right and true. So is it an and, attack and on you or is, yeah. Of course. And, and of course it's, we know practically speaking and from history that it's a very slippery slope between those two. And it's very easy to, 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 to mm-hmm. think I'm doing this with all the best motives when in fact there's some other motives mixed in. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody can frame their actions as justified. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Um, And so another part of this um, that's that's interesting when the enemies of Christ, um, and I think he goes to John's appearance. So he actually comes, talks a little about the the details of John's appearance, Um, and that John and his appearance is counter to what tradition has um, upheld as the, as the true holy people. So what, and so he's claiming here that because they're respecting him and his camel hair coat and eating locusts and honey, um, that even those of means respect John, which I thought, okay. Um, that he demanded respect even from those who have wrapped around, walked around in trappings of riches and robes. Hmm. Um, and, so instead of, I think he's buying into here the idea that the Pharisees wanted to be baptized. Well, I was Whereas, thinking perhaps he takes the all Judea and all the region around the Jordan and Jerusalem as not necessarily being all, all as a reference to many, but all as all. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and, um, but, but interesting here, too, um, he wants to attack the practice of the monks in overemphasizing appearance as an advantageous holy state. So what constitutes having some kind of authority? I'm not sure, some kind of religious authority. Um, this is not to be, following John the Baptist is not to become a reason to live in austerity, mm-hmm. as he says. Um, just saying, look, this is a man from the mountains, that his dress was primarily um, reflecting what that where he came from, and to be simple and honest. So, not ostentatious, but not necessarily as a model that we're supposed to follow. Mm-hmm. Um, but rather that he his authority came from somewhere else. I think is really what he's coming out of. That this isn't yeah. a guy who's just coming out of the tradition that's there, but he's coming out of the wilderness, if you right. will. Right. Mm-hmm. And finally, the last theme I saw was election. <laughs> of course. And I didn't go into as much detail, but he reads election into the passage. And, and of course, as in our earlier discussion with Alan, you can see exactly how he got there. Um, the relationships between the chaff and the wheat. Um, 
I do think it's important to remember that Calvin's theology comes on top of a long period of medieval theology where Jesus is the judge. And of course, Matthew's gospel lends itself perfectly for that. So it's not hard to see how his theology then builds upon that when um, looking at this part of Matthew. And um, he, uh, he doesn't go into detail about all of the medieval precursors, but it does fit his idea of double predestination. Um, and uh, again, those who are truly repentant reflect those who are chosen and those who are not truly repentant and who continue to uh, and continue on, they then would be part of the reprobate. Um, so believers come with a contrite heart and hope while the repro- reprobate re- experience guilt. And Calvin does say that the idea of burning in hell is metaphorical, um, but he does say that it reflects a dreadful torment, which can't be comprehended. And that's a lot of Reformed theology out of a pretty short passage. Yeah, yeah. All right. Thanks, Christy. Hi, everybody. We're back. And during our little break, we thought, ah, gee, we just did this whole big thing on on John the Baptist and the book of Matthew. And, oh, yes, it's the second Sunday of Advent. And uh, I think, you know, when when uh, some folks start coming back to church during Advent, thinking they're going to start to hear about, you know, Jesus and and even... uh, they're going to expect to hear maybe those narratives that we hear in Luke, and here they get this on John the Baptist. And so how do we tie this into the second Sunday of Advent? Well, and it's a tough question. Um, You know, what I set out to do with my look at Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 through 12, was to look at Matthew 3, look at that passage in and of its own, you know, merits. Uh, But when you look at at the lectionary and, and, you know, this is, it's, it's common to have John the Baptist on the second Sunday of Advent. And it's, it's the Sunday of peace, which is in, you know, it's hope, peace, joy, and love Mm -hmm. are the, are the four Sundays in Advent. And we might think it weird or strange that, that the idea of peace is, is connected with someone like John the Baptist, especially as we see him in Matthew's gospel, talking about wrath and, you know, the coming wrath and, mm-hmm. and judgment and those kinds of things. I think what we have to understand is that, um, you know, John really is functioning in the role of a prophet from the Hebrew Bible. And, and the role of the prophets was to call people back to God. And that's, mm-hmm. that's really the po- po- focus right. of Advent, just as much as Lent. Right. It's a time for us to reflect on our lives and to prepare ourselves for the celebration of, right. of the coming of the Lord at Christmas. And, and, you know, the, so that, that role of preparing ourselves that, that as John called the people to, to do is one that is there. And the, the way in which peace comes in the Hebrew prophets is through justice. And, and, you know, we don't really hear a lot of that in Matthew's presentation of John the Baptist, but of course, all we have to do is go back to last year to Luke to hear, you know, the things he said, you know, to the people, if anybody has two coats, 
share. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tax collectors right. don't collect more than you're, you're supposed to. Uh, soldiers don't use your 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 ability to inflict harm right. to extort right. money. You know these kinds of things. Those are all justice themes. Right. It just doesn't right. come out quite so clearly in our Matthew text. But I think. I think we can go back because, for example, the reading from Isaiah for the day is about the shoot that comes from the stump of Jesse. Mm-hmm. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, spirit of counsel and might, spirit of knowledge and fear right. of the Lord. With righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. You know, right, that, right. that res- resonates with themes it of does. justice it for does. us. And it so I, I, and I think the, the thing about the prophets that I want to emphasize here is that Pretty much it was a common theme that the prophets called the people to practice justice as a means of their repentance. That's how they were to repent and to return to the Lord. And then their peace would flourish because the Lord would respond to their repentance by bringing them peace. Right, right. Well, I think, you know, I'm thinking about this, this lectionary passage. And, of course, I'm thinking about Calvin's commentaries, which... You know, they would have had the medieval com- medieval lectionary, but this is Calvin who didn't also want to celebrate Christmas Day, didn't wow. want to take, take, you know, Calvin Calvin didn't want to make one Sunday special. Mm-hmm. Um, every Sunday every is the Lord's Sunday Day. Every Sunday is the Lord's Day. Yeah. But, or one day, I mean, Christmas wasn't even on Sunday necessarily, of course. Um, so I think what an, <laughs> but I think what's important here is to hear the good news, you have to be aware of, what's not so good. Mm-hmm. And I think we I think we take the Christmas story and we kind of dumb it down when we don't realize why Jesus came and what and and, and we don't realize the the kinds of um injustices and the kinds well, there of was selfishness and the corruption yeah. and all of the all of the things that make up kind of the human reality. Um and so when we c- celebrate Christmas, it's it's that renewal, like as you said, calling people back. But if we don't remind people about these stories before, I think we really do an injustice to Jesus coming. And um, you know, it reminds me, <laughs> we spend so much time. We begin celebrating Christmas as we know before yeah. we celebrate, and this is we celebrate. We start decorating for Christmas before Thanksgiving. Exactly, <laughs> many people do right. So. Um, this 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 just stops us in our tracks, and mm-hmm. this really takes us into the heart of the human pain and suffering that's there, which I think is really important um, for us to be in. And it's it's not comfortable to read this. It's, no, it's not, it's not at all. But that's the case with the prophets as well, and yet the prophets were, you know, and I've always maintained, you know, that judgment in the Bible is always to bring people back to God. Mm-hmm. Now, I have to say, in the apocalyptic literature, that's not the case. That's not the case, And right. with Matthew, we see that coming out some. Right. That in some respects, judgment leads to condemnation and right. destruction. But I think here, I think here, now maybe I'm wrong, Matthew is, I mean, there's still mm. a hope with Matthew, with bringing in John, because Jesus hasn't come yet. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, and... Um, well, and again, we're, I think we're meant to see in Matthew, uh, you know, again, in, in, in Matthew, in Luke's gospel, it's the crowds that come to John, and John says, who told you to flee the coming wrath? Right. In Matthew's gospel, the crowds respond and are baptized. Right. And it's 
the Pharisees and the Sadducees to whom John says, who told you to flee the wrath that right, is to come? Right. right. So the implication is that there are many people who have responded right. appropriately. They have repented right, and they right. are uh, preparing themselves to receive right, the one who is right. to come. And so that's a, I think that's another positive element in this passage mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I like what you said a bit earlier about us dumbing down Christmas. You know, I, I'm dating myself here. Perhaps I don't know if the Charlie, if Charlie Brown Christmas is still on television, but I think that's our image of Christmas. That's the, that cultural image of Christmas is the one that we want to embrace. Oh, exactly. You know, it's a warm and fuzzy Christmas. Christmas is a time to be happy and so you have you know you have you know the the 25 days of christmas all through december Mm -hmm. instead of the 12 days of christmas that start with december 25th and end on january 6th right right? exactly and 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 you know the, the the liturgical calendar says that until December 25th, we're supposed to be examining ourselves and preparing ourselves right, to meet right. the coming Lord exactly. in, in ways that, that John is, is suggesting. Um, that's, yeah, that runs yeah. totally counter to the cultural way oh, in which absolutely. Christmas is celebrated. And even, how, and even how we think about it, you know, and of course we talk about Advent, and I think we've talked about this before, you know, what are you singing at Advent? And, mm-hmm. and most people are singing Christmas carols, and in fact... Um, and, and, and that's fine, but yet I think there's a space for this. I think especially, I mean, I keep thinking about right now, and there's every person is has some place where they're angry about the harsh political rhetoric or the war going on in Ukraine, mm-hmm. the injustice in Iran, the... Um, the injustice um, in this country. The, in, the injustice in this country, too. Um, just uh, all of this is, is just eating us up and we just it, you just feel like you want it you want it to just all slough off your body mm-hmm. and somehow this coming of i'm just gonna come and it's all gonna come out here and this gives us really the space to do it that and to listen to that you know i will say that you know the again as i said the second sunday in every electionary year is devoted to john the baptist mm-hmm. and i think it's probably one of the most uh difficult uh Sundays to preach the gospel lesson because of that. Um, and I'm not sure how well people can hear this message, You're but right. I keep trying. Yes, I because think that's the key. I think the idea of we really do need to stop and take a look at our lives and see, you know, how is my life? contrary to the kingdom of God? How is my life yeah. not in line with Jesus right. and his, his message? You know, I think that's a necessary action. And, you know, most people do that when we observe the Lord's Supper. That's something that people think of in, those, in, that, in that space. But, um, you know, the Christmas season, as it's called, you know, um, that's not a time, that's a time for being jolly. And, and I, I, I use jolly, not necessarily joyful. I, jolly is to me right. something superficial, right, something right, right, that right, is, right. that is external. Right, right. Um, um, and, uh, you know, I think there can be joy associated with the um, act of examining our lives and recognizing 
okay, Lord, here I am. Right. I, I right. am in the wrong here, and I right. bring this to you, and I bring it to you in in the confidence that you will you will accept this and right. that you will transform me and and right. make straight <laughs> my life right. and and help and that me will allow me to take in the the gospel when as it comes and as christmas comes in in a whole renewing exactly. Exactly. world that that you you don't get when you don't and so this I, is I think really, that's the point i think that's I think the point of the liturgical the way the liturgical is calendar too. is organized yeah. i think it is too and to some extent i think it might be the point of why they begin with john the baptist yeah and and so the challenge is you know once again this year to try to bring that message to people who are already wanting to be jolly <laughs> yeah that's right that's right well i think that's our podcast today thanks Thank christy That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.